0: Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, my name is Pete and I'm the director of Chi Alpha. So if you're new here, I look forward to getting to know you and meeting you. Um, I'm going to bring our message tonight, and so uh, as I start the message, I'm going to do something that you do before every test, likely. If not, you'll do it. now. <laughs> pray, right? Yeah. Anybody with me? Like, oh, dear Jesus, I know I should have studied more. Okay. You've prayed that prayer. If not, that's probably the first prayer you ever will pray, and then you'll keep praying. Okay. Anyways, Lord, we need your help. Would you be with us? Open our eyes to see, open our minds to understand, open our hearts to receive, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was a freshman in high school, and I was on the basketball team. Um, when I started high school, I was five 5'2", 99 pounds. And that's right. So I started center. No, I didn't. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, for that reason and some other reasons, I was on what was affectionately known as the B team. Now, why would you name it that? There's the A team and the B team. I was on the B team. And quite frankly, uh, I did all right on the B team. In fact, I did so all right on the B team that I thought I deserved a little A team time, right? And so one day I was in a uh, study hall in Miss Machino's class. And what I realized is Miss Machino's class was right next to Mr. Tony's class. And Mr. Tony was my freshman High school coach. In that study hall was another guy by the name of Randy Murphy. Well, neither one of us had a lot of work to do that day, and we started talking, and we said, you know what we should do? We are both on the B team. We're both holding our own on the B team. We said, here's what we should do. Up, oh, Here's what we should do. We should write a letter to Mr. Tony and put it on his desk on our way out of study hall and tell him why we deserve more playing time on the A team. So we commenced to write our letter, as anyone would, right? We started writing our letter. We wrote it on our way out of study hall. We put it on his desk, only to soon realize we made a grave error. What was that error you say? The error was we forgot to look at the schedule of who our next game was, right? Our next game was against the best team on the schedule, Mount Vernon. Okay, so yeah, that's not the time you want to write that letter, right? Well, first of all, he never said anything about the letter. To this day, nothing has ever been said about the letter. So we were wondering, did he get the letter? Did the letter get thrown away? Did it, you know, what happened to the letter? Well, we go to Mount Vernon to play. After the end of one eight-minute quarter, the score was 27 to 1. Okay, and eight minutes, that means they were scoring three and a half points every minute against us. We could barely get the ball across half court, but Steve Willis got fouled and he made one free throw. So we scored that quarter. Okay. So in the midst of the second quarter, Coach Tony looks down the bench and he says, Bulette, Murphy, get in there. He read the letter. So what happens? My heart starts racing with fear and excitement. And inside, I had this kind of sense, game on, here we go. And so I'm not going to tell you what happened, but here's the point. (laughs) Much like Randy and I, who were tired of sitting on the bench and we're like, we're not made to be sitting on the bench, all 5'2", 99 pounds of me, supposed to be out there on the court. That there is a sense that we get a bit restless when we have a sense that we are not engaging in the plans and purposes that God has for us. Do you know that this sense for purpose and meaning that, that you will experience in waves at times, is, it's not by accident. God put that in you. He made you for a purpose. He made you to have meaning. And so there's something inside of us that when we feel like that, that's lacking. There's a, there's a holy discontent. And what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at a story of somebody who got in the game, and we're going to look at what happened when he got in the game, the impact of him getting in the game, and spoiler alert. The impact was great. So if you will, I want you to turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter one, and I'm going to set up this, this passage, and uh, then we will read it together. Okay, so here we go. As you, okay, where's Nehemiah? Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. If if you go to 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, then there's Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, as I recall. If you get to a book called Job, you've gone too far, okay? I mean, (laughs) it's a book on suffering. You don't want to read it. Anyways, (laughs) it's a whole nother joke. But uh, it's actually called Job, but it looks like Job. So, all right. So here's what Nehemiah is about. Nehemiah... Is about a time... Okay, here's what you need to know. Israel had been invaded by a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and he destroyed the city, okay? And as he destroyed the city, he took exiles. He took people back to Babylon with him. And they stayed in exile for the next 70 years. And then after 70 years, waves of Israelites began to come back to Jerusalem and some stayed in Babylon, which then became conquered by Persia. And so, what we have is a guy by the name of Nehemiah, an Israelite, who is still in Persia, and he gets a report from his brother, who is now in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's what we're going to read about. We're, we'll talk about it from there. Nehemiah chapter one. By the way, in the original, Esther, I'm sorry, sorry Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They're now two books, but originally they're one, so we need to know that. Okay, chapter one of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hacaliah. Okay, just if you wonder who his dad was, there you go. In the month of Kislev, which would be December, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, that had survived in in exile and also about Jerusalem. So his brother comes. He starts asking him questions about how is the Jewish remnant doing and how is Jerusalem, and this is the report he got, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived in exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah says this When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah gets this report that the people of God are in big trouble. They're greatly, it says, they're disgraced and in great trouble. Why? Because the the walls of Jerusalem, 140 years later, after it was ransacked and torn down, 140 years later, the walls still are in in ruins and, and the gates are still torn down. You're like, well, what's the big deal about that? I'm glad you asked. Here's the big deal. It means that was their primary, that was their missile defense system, okay? So it means that they were defenseless against their enemies. They were prone to attacks. They were in a place where they were in in great distress and they were not flourishing. And when he gets this report, it's almost as if God took this burden and dropped it into his heart with this report. Now, I got to think this wasn't new news, but somehow when he realized that things were still in bad shape, this burden came onto his heart. And what did he do? It says that he, he fasted and he mourned and he prayed as he had this burden of, this is not right. I would suggest to you that every great work of God starts with a burden where somebody's heart starts to feel what God feels. Somebody's eyes start to see what God sees, and a burden comes on to somebody. If you were to backtrack from a a great work of God, a church that was planted, or a work on the mission field, and you backtrack, it probably started with somebody getting a burden for God's heart. Um, I remember one time sitting in the pav and... As we were in the PAV, I was having a one-on-one with a guy by the name of Josh Moran. Now, many of you don't know who Josh Moran is. Josh is the Chi Alpha director at JMU. He and his wife planted JMU Chi Alpha three years ago. He'd worked here on staff for 10 years. He was a student here, um, really came to know the Lord here. Anyways, we were in the PAV. He was a student in a one-on-one. And as he sat down, the PAV was bustling as it normally is, right? And I asked him to look around. And I said, What do you see? He's just looking around. Then I asked another follow up question. I, said, I asked this What do you think Jesus sees? That, that's a moment that was etched in both of our hearts because it was almost as if we got this kind of glimpse that, that Jesus sees this whole thing very different than we see. What do you think Jesus sees in your dorm? What do you think Jesus sees as you walk the corner? What do you think Jesus sees? Well, in Matthew, we get a glimpse A description of what Jesus saw when he says he saw a crowd and he was moved with compassion, Matthew nine thirty six. And in fact, I can just here is the description. This is how Jesus saw the crowd harassed, harassed. What do you mean they're harassed? Harassed by who? Well, I, I can only conjecture harassed by the the kingdom and the powers of darkness. Helpless. Helpless against who? They're they're sheep without a shepherd. They have no one. So this is how Jesus saw the crowd on an ordinary day, harassed by the powers of darkness, worked over by the world, and helpless. No, they were sheep without a shepherd. In other words, no one to provide them defense. No one to provide them direction. No one to provide them protection. No one to care for them. That's how Jesus saw the crowd. What do you think Jesus sees in your class? In the path, your dorm, on the corner. I want to show you a a picture that we have up in our... It's a pretty picture that we have this up in our uh, office but the picture is not pretty. It's a pretty picture, but the picture's not pretty. Okay, so this is... We didn't do like some deep survey. This is what we assume as we kind of... From what we know of the landscape of the body of Christ at the University of Virginia. So uh, the, the orange part are those people who are engaged in fellowship at the university. In other words, people who are, who are engaged with the body of Christ, who either know Christ or are coming to know Christ... And so we have a, po- a portion of that that would be Chi Alpha and a portion of the other wonderful fellowships on these grounds that do wonderful work that people are engaged with. Now, as, as Jesus were to look at that map, where do you think his attention goes? Do you think his attention is like, wow, look at all the orange? Or do you think his attention goes to those who are harassed and helpless and sheep without a shepherd? Okay, do you think Jesus is content with the, with the, the map? Because who, okay, whose brother and sister would you say he would be okay with being harassed and helpless? Whose son and daughter? Is he like, yeah, I'm okay with that. I want to conjecture, and I, I think on biblical grounds, that Jesus' eyes goes to the white, because if he leaves the 99 to go for the one, then surely he's going to leave the 10 to go for the 90, or the, or the 15 to go for the 85, or whatever. You know, Are you guys following me? And I, I, I have a sense... That Jesus is not content with the map. And then the question becomes are we? Okay, so this is not about Chi Alpha. This isn't about, like, you'd be amazed if you knew how little I knew about numbers for ex accountant, okay? I used to be an accountant. This isn't about guilt. I have an aversion to guilt. This is about God's heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, it's, the, it's Christ's love that compels us. Okay, so it's about us starting to see what he sees and feel what he feels so we would be compelled by his love for them to move towards God them and say, it's not just enough for me to have a shepherd. It's, I, 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 wanna, I want other people to know his love and his shepherding heart. So I have a, a question. Will you ask God tonight to allow you to see what he sees and to feel What he feels. Would you ask that really bold question? Like when tomorrow, when I go to class, would you let me see what you see? Like when I go into this comm school and everybody looks like they got it made because they got the offer and they're, you know, they're what can, can you let me see what you see and feel what you feel? And so that's what happens to Nehemiah. Just one day, he just feels what they feel and sees what they see. Or what God sees. Let's keep going. Uh, the last line of chapter 1, we find out something very important. It says, and I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king. What that means is this. that Nehemiah had access to the king that very few people had. He was cupbearer to the king. and Literally, the king would trust his life to this guy. And so what you find out is this, is that God had strategically positioned Nehemiah to do something about it. Why did Nehemiah get this burden? Because he was strategically positioned to do something about it. And so here's the question, will Nehemiah leverage his position? Because here's what I believe. I believe God providentially positions his people for his purposes. And now the question will be, what will Nehemiah do as he has this burden? Will he say, okay, I've been positioned for this moment to do something about it, or will he say, actually, my career is not necessarily about God's purposes, it's about what my plans are and what my purposes are, right? Here's what I know. You and I both face a similar temptation. And here's the temptation. It's called introverted Christianity. My friend Mark Batterson made up this term, where we start to Try to get God to follow us and our purposes instead of follow him and his purposes. Where the Christian life can quickly be about trying to get the Holy Spirit to follow us versus us following the Spirit. Are you guys following me? Where we get the equation turned around. And if Nehemiah gets this equation turned around, he's not going to do anything with this bird. He's going to try to get rid of it. So let's see what Nehemiah does. Hop over to chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. And I love the candor of these verses as Nehemiah records it because it's so relatable. Here's what he says. Verse 3. Okay, so he came into the king's presence and he was, he was downcast. And so the king asked him what's wrong. And so here's what he says. Okay, here we go. I was very much afraid. Okay, he's getting ready to talk to the king. That if the king takes this the wrong way, it could mean... His life, maximally, minimally, his career. Okay, so he's like, I'm very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. First of all, long live the king. You know, he's buttering up because he knows what he's getting ready to say. Why should my face not look sad when the city of my ancestors are buried? Uh, or who, where my? I'm sorry. And when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. He said, basically, my people are in a terrible situation. How can I not be downcast? In verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I love this. And I prayed to the God of heaven. Anybody ever like, okay, here we go. And you just pray a quick prayer like, oh, God, help me. One of those quick prayers. So he prays a quick prayer and said, oh, God, help me. And then he says this. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let me sit... Let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And it's silent. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. In other words, I don't know, about like three months, I don't know. You know he just kind of responds. And then verse 7. Okay, so Nehemiah senses the doors cracking as he, as he says, game on. He gets in the game. He says this, well, if it pleases the king, may I have a letter to the governor of the Trans-Euphrates so that he will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asa, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timbers to make beams for the gates of the citadel and the temple and for the city of and the, the city wall and for the residents that I'll occupy. So he's like going for broke now. He's like, okay, if you let me go, can I get a letter and can I get some um, so, uh, another letter so I get the stuff that I need to, to rebuild the city? And this is what it says. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted me my requests. Okay. Here's what could have happened when the king asked him the question. Nehemiah could have determined, it's too risky, and said absolutely nothing. He could have thought, it'd be too awkward because he's not a Jew and I'm a Jew, and if I bring it up and it becomes religious, it's just going to be awkward because he wants to talk about religion when you're from different religions, so I just won't, I'll just say, oh, nothing. Or, I'm too busy, and if I, what if he... What if he does let me go, and I got a pretty good gig here as a, as a cupbearer, and I got a pretty busy schedule, and I'd have to reorient my life, and I don't really know if I really want to reorient my life, and so I guess I'll just say nothing. He could have had any of those reasons to say nothing, and the book of Nehemiah would have ended, and you could have read it in your devotional, the whole thing this morning. It's been great. But instead, Nehemiah takes a courageous step, says, I'm willing to reorganize my life And he says, game on. And here's what happens. God meets him in that moment, gives him favor with the king. And now he's heading back a 1,500-mile trek back to Jerusalem to see if he can do something about the wall. Here's the question that I have for you. Where does God have you positioned for his purposes? I believe God is still providentially placing people in places for his purposes if they will do two things. One, have the courage to step out and take a bold risk. And two, reorient their lives around his purposes. Where does he have you positioned? Does he have you positioned in your dorm? Does he have you positioned in the ROTC? Does he have you positioned in in the comm school, or in the e-school, or in the ed school, or in the college? Does he have you positioned at your part-time job? Does he have you positioned in your fraternity or sorority with your big or your little? Where does he have you positioned that if you will leverage it, it could make a huge difference where you're... At. But you're like, but I don't know how the conversation would go if I invited them to Ki-Alpha or I brought up Jesus or talked about faith. Well, guess what? Nehemiah didn't either. He didn't know how it was going to go. That's why he prayed. Oh, dear God. And he went for it and God met him. And here's what we know. That because Nehemiah took a step of faith, it changed Everything. Because God met him in that step of faith. So the second is, there's a time to get in the game for his purposes. Where does he want you to get into the game this semester? And then finally, the third point that I'm going to make is this. We live out our purpose together. Um, If you read chapter 3, it would be a chapter that you would be tempted to skim. You say, why? Why? Because it's got a bunch of names. And I know what you do when you get to those names. You just kind of skim the names. Because you can't pronounce them well anyways, right? But here's, here's the thing. This chapter that has a bunch of names is actually one of the most exciting chapters in the book of Nehemiah. Why? Because it is, a, it is a list of names of ordinary people who did an extraordinary thing. And you realize these are just like ordinary people that God is using powerfully. So you get the names of, of, of a goldsmith named U- Uziel right? Anybody named Uziel in here? Is there Uziel? Okay. There's, there's a, a perfume maker named Hananiah. Is there a Hananiah in here? Why don't we have Because these are just like ordinary people, right? People don't name their kids after them. But here's what you find is this goldsmith and this perfume maker that they built the wall shoulder to shoulder because they heard Nehemiah share the vision that says, we can do this. God is with us. He will grant us success. And so they start building the wall next to each other. And next to them, we find that there's merchants that built the wall. And then there was uh, sons and daughters. And then there was priests. And then there were politicians. And so you had all these different people who are normal people, average, ordinary, everyday people who got in the game shoulder to shoulder, side by side for the purposes of God. And here's what you find out, that in fifty days they rebuilt a wall that sat torn down for 140 years. Whoa! 52 days? You know what name you won't find in the list? You won't find Nehemiah's name. You know why? Because it wasn't about Nehemiah. It was about average, ordinary people who said, we'll join in and let's see what God does. And in 52 days, 140 years, it's turned around. You know, in the New Testament, we see that every believer is called a priest. Did you know that? It's called the priesthood of all believers. It talks about it in Revelation, talks about it in First Peter. Can I give you the Pete Pete Bulet paraphrase of what that means? We all have access to God and we all have something to do (laughs) that God wants us to do, right? We all have direct access to God and God has something that He wants all of us to do. And here's what this means it means that the mission of God at UVA isn't just for your core group leaders, it means that your core group leaders can't reach all of your friends. Do you know who can't reach all your friends? They're friends. Who's that? Okay. It also means this, that the mission of chi isn't just for the staff. That you, well, I hope, hope the person I'm praying for in my dorm walks across the table and Bailey and Christopher and Bradley meet them at the table at the question of the week this week. No, that ain't going to work. But here's the good news. If we all say, Jesus... What do you want me to do this semester? Where do you? What plans and purposes do you have for me this semester? And we all shoulder to shoulder, grab a brick, and what could happen if it, if they can rebuild a wall in fifty two days? What could God do in one semester if we all said we're going to be in the game? Game on! We're shoulder to shoulder. We're going to do it together. And then our core groups feel more like platoon meetings to go out and fulfill the mission. You know what I'm saying? I, Okay, not to use a war metaphor too much, but you know what I'm saying. Where okay. we're soldiers for another king with a mission to fulfill. Let me tell you one parting shot in a story. Do you know who the hero of this story is? Yes, you guessed it. It's God. It's God. Why do I say that? Because this phrase, the gracious hand of God, is in Ezra and Nehemiah eight different times. And here's what what Nehemiah said. The God of heaven will grant us success. Because his gracious hand was on me, he gave me favor before the king. In other words, all he needed was somebody to make themselves available, and God would do it. And so... The hero of the story isn't Nehemiah. It isn't the goldsmith. It isn't the perfume maker. It's God. And you say, "Well, but wait, Pete. How do I know that God's gracious hand is on me? I mean, it was good for them that God's hand was on. But how do I know it's on? I'm so glad you asked. Next, Ezra eight twenty two says this: God's gracious hand. Let's say this together. Is on who? everyone who looks to him. In other words, his gracious hands means you can't earn his hand of favor and blessing. He gives it by his grace. How do you get it? You just simply look to him in dependence and say, God, I need you. And it says this, that when you look to him, he says, I'm going to put my hand on them. Isn't that good news? Um, I don't know if you can tell, but this story is very personal to me, and I want to tell you why. 22 years ago, uh, Amy and I moved to Charlottesville where we didn't know anyone at the University of Virginia, and no one knew what Chi Alpha was, okay? Like, literally, we knew no one. We, I mean, we, we didn't know that they were called first years and second years. We thought they were freshmen and sophomores and People are like, "You're not from around here, are you?" We learned quickly. But we, 22 years ago we moved here, so we knew no students, and we didn't have the money raised that we would need to be able to do what we were doing. So we're raising money, and it was scary. And I was reading the Bible because that's the only thing that sustained me, because I honestly felt like was I a fool. I remember going on prayer walks. This wasn't in notes. But I was go- I'd go on prayer walks. I uh, <laughs> prayed really bold prayers of faith like this. Okay, God, you've got two years, and then I'm leaving. Well, it's 22 years later, so you know what happened. But the point is, I was like, was I a fool to do this? I was so s- scared. And as I was reading Ezra and Nehemiah, the Holy Spirit put on my heart to write down some verses on little post-it notes. And, and here's the verse. Ezra six seven six says this, For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And so those are the post-it notes. So I wrote down, The hand of the Lord his God was on him, and I put it over my desk. And then I got to Nehemiah 2.20, and it says this, The God of heaven will grant him success. And so I wrote, The God of heaven will grant him success on my little post-it note, and I put it up on my wall. And those two post-it notes and those two verses have been on my wall for 22 years. Because I know this, I'm nothing. I'm just a kid from southern Illinois. But I also know this, that the gracious hand of God makes all the difference in and if you said, tell us the story of Chi Alpha, I could sum it up in one phrase. Here's the one phrase of the story of Chi Alpha. The gracious hand of God has been on us. How have we seen lives change? I mean, today I had a, uh, an alum who came to Christ and wanted me to meet her, her fiance. And so she was sitting in my office and, 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 she, and I think she met the Lord in 2012. And and she leaves, and I'm thinking, how did that happen? The gracious hand of God. You want to know the story of Chi Alpha? It's about ordinary students. First year, second year, third year, fourth. It isn't the story of Pete. Name is the story of students who said, "You know what? Give me a brick. I'm going to trust that the gracious hand of God is on me, and I'm going to go lay a, a brick and another brick and another brick, and we're going to build a wall on these grounds, and we're going to see something happen. And can I tell you? We've seen stuff happen here, and we've seen it go to the nations." And it wasn't because the students were so great. It was because God is so great. God is so good. And when his hand is on you, it makes all the difference in the world. That's the story of our fellowship. It's the story of God's gracious hand. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I got good news for you. You know that sense that you were made for a purpose? That's God gave you that. You're right. You were made on purpose, with a purpose, and God has plans and purposes for your life. And it's not just when you graduate, it's today and tomorrow and the day after that. And what you'll see as you read the Bible is there's one greater than Nehemiah that shows up on the scene who a burden was placed on his heart, who looked at people and saw them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he reoriented his life around a cross so that you could have life and meet the one who made you with a purpose and then live out that purpose. As we close tonight, I'm going to invite the worship team up. I have some questions that I would like for you to consider. Number one is this. Will you ask God to give you eyes to see what he sees and a heart to feel what he feels? I challenge you tomorrow when you go to class, when you go to the dining hall, when you go to the path, just to ask that question. God, what do you see? Secondly, I have this question for you: Where does God have you positioned? right now. Where has He providentially positioned you for His glory? right now? Not well, maybe someday, and no, no no, right now. Where does He have you positioned? And will you leverage it? Will you take the risky step? Will you not say, well, it's too risky, or it's too awkward, or I'm too busy? Will you just take the step and see what God's gracious... What would you do if you knew God's gracious hand was on you? What would you do? Then do that. Do that. And then finally, will you join with your brothers and sisters in this room tonight and say, game on. Let's do this together. I'm not going to relegate it to my core group leader. I'm not going to relegate it to the staff. It's for all of us, for the perfume makers and the priests and the, and the goldsmiths and the sons and daughters and the politicians. It's for all of us. Let's build the wall together. And if God can do something great in 52 days, what could he do this semester? Will you stand? Here's what we're going to do tonight as we, as, as we close and the, the worship team plays. I don't know if you noticed, but there's some piles of bricks around here. You guys notice those? When you came in, there's some bricks in the back, some bricks in the front. Here's what we're going to do as the worship team plays. We're going to go and grab a brick. And here's what I want you to do as you walk and and grab the brick. I want you to picture your Savior handing you the brick and saying, here, here's a brick I want you to help build the wall this semester. And here's what I want you to think about. Where does he want you to lay that brick this semester? And maybe when you get home tonight, you, you take out your sharp marker and you, and you write the, the place or the people that he wants you to, to step out in faith with and get in and say, game on. So if you're online in quarantine, you want a brick, we'll get you a brick, Okay. But my hope is, as we all grab this brick, that the Holy Spirit will make this specific into your heart. And that this semester, we'll see a wall that what could happen if we did this together. As I understand, we're going to talk, we're going to sing, Come Fill This Place, is that what we're singing? Okay, as we sing, Come Fill This Place, as we do this, I don't want you to think about this place, like the SAB, like that's the goal. I want you to think about the corners of grounds. I want you to think about Rugby Road and and the corner and Faulkner and Copley and and the new dorms and the old dorms and Brown College. I want you to think about your program as we sing that song. I I want your heart to go there and pray, God, come fill those places. That's the goal. Does that sound good? All right. There's bricks in the back, there's bricks in the front. It's going to be a little bit, you know, you're a you're, you're UVA switch. You can figure this out, right? All right, just be be aware of everybody, all right? And uh, let's grab a brick for God's glory. Let's go. Yes, Lord, we pray for your glory to fill the earth as like the waters cover the sea. Lord, fill these grounds as the waters cover the sea. Lord, would you give us tonight eyes to see what you see and a heart to feel what you feel. Lord, would you give us the courage and boldness to take a a risky step of faith where it's needed with a confidence that your gracious hand is on us, O God. Lord, give us a revelation of the difference that the gracious hand of God makes in our lives. Lord, I pray that together as a a family of your sons and daughters, that we would join shoulder to shoulder and lay our brick exactly where you want us to put it. In fact, if you have the brick, if you don't mind, let's just hold it up and say, "Lord, Lord, we want to put this brick symbolically to build a wall here that your people and your plans and your purposes would flourish on these grounds. That lives would be changed, that you would be glorified, that your heart, your desire, and your will would be accomplished on these grounds. So use us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, God's gracious hand is on you. Now let's go lay the brick. All right. Here's what I encourage you to do. Talk with your core group about what the Lord put in your heart of where you're going to put that brick. Go home. Take your Sharpie out write on the brick. And put it on your desk to remind you the plans and purposes God has for you. Okay, the benediction, guys. We got a benediction. (laughs) I lost you. I lost you. You're ready back there, though. All right. And for the benediction, <laughs> may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. May he know, you know that his gracious hand is on you. May he fill you with peace in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God bless you. Let's have a wonderful semester following Jesus. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.